Hey, and before we jump into this morning's message on Romans chapter 9, um, I'm really excited for you to be introduced today to a new ministry in our town. It's uh, um, in pa- uh, partnership or, or with our partner uh, church in our denomination in North American Baptist denomination, Horizon Church has a campus in Galt and also in Lodi and Horizon Lodi in partner with uh, some other organizations is uh, um, uh, putting together a preschool that as far as uh, I know is the first Christian preschool in East Lodi. And so they're on Garfield Street. We're super excited about that. We've got a little video to introduce you to that. And then we'll have some of the team um, share as well. So let's take a look at that video. Greetings from Horizon Preschool. We're here across from Heritage Elementary School on the corner of Garfield and Flora. And today our team is excited to share with you about this exciting opportunity that God has for us. The east side of Lodi is full of neighborhoods that are culturally diverse and beautiful. It's our belief that from these neighborhoods, we will have future city council leaders, teachers, and essential workers. It's our hope that Horizon Preschool will be more than just a place where students will come and learn, that it will be a place where they will see, hear, and experience the gospel every single day. There are already churches and people involved whose sole purpose it is to show these students and families God's love, and there's ways for you to be involved as well. Over 30 years ago, I helped launch Vinewood Preschool, which is located at Vinewood Church. This 100-year-old building where I'm standing is actually the original place of worship for Vinewood Church. Over the years, I've seen God work in lives of so many children and their families at Vinewood Preschool. I had this crazy idea that there might be an opportunity to get to know families on the east side via a preschool. And now, because of God's provision, we can't wait to start enrolling children, impacting a whole new generation for Jesus Christ in this neighborhood. Our mission at Horizon Preschool is to love this neighborhood and their children and families. We're here to be the hands and feet of Christ. We can't wait for all these young minds to get to know each other, have fun, and learn more about who created them and why he loves them so much. When we first started talking about this idea of launching a preschool, it seemed impossible. The logistics were overwhelming and we knew it was going to be expensive. But I also soon realized that we weren't in this alone. So many people from so many different churches quickly got involved. We've had help from Vinewood, First Baptist, Grace Point, Emmanuel Lutheran, Church of Christ on Ham, Kingdom Community, and many, many others have all pitched in to help make this a reality. And we've already overcome many of the obstacles that I thought were insurmountable. We've got rezoned from the city. We've passed all of our fire inspections. We even have a license from the state. And today I'm excited to say that we're hoping to have our opening day, August 2nd. Now the reality is that many of the families over here on the east side struggle financially. And so asking them to pay for full tuition was something we knew would be difficult. So from the get-go, part of our vision for this project was to subsidize the tuition for every single child. Now it costs about $3,000 for one full year of tuition per student. And we know that's a lot and any gift will help, but we believe that with the help of churches, families, friends, and businesses that care about the East Side, that together we can do this. 
For more information and to get involved, check out our website, horizonpreschool.org. All right, that's awesome. That's great. Not an exciting vision, and so it's great to have uh, some of the leadership team from the preschool. Um, many of you know Liz Devon. She's worked in uh, that neighborhood for a number of years with uh, uh, 180 Community. Uh, pastor Jared is the pastor there, skipping church to be with us today. So glad about that. And Carla's going to be the director, and Debbie's the chief visionary officer. <laughs> and uh, Debbie has been uh, the director of Vinewood Preschool, um, impacted a lot of people. And so, Debbie, would you just Share with us uh, kind of your heart and, and what we need to know as a church. Okay. Um, it's great to be here with you this morning to um, talk about Horizon Preschool. At the first service, I did have a, p- a few people come up to me and say, I cannot believe you're leaving Vinewood. You're going over Horizon. Right. I'm not. I'm just going to kind of be at two places at once. Um, but I wanted to come here this morning, too, to thank your church because you played a big role in the vision for the first preschool on the east side of um, Lodi. In March of 2019, I actually walked through a vacant Joe Cerna building with Jake and Allie McGregor, and we talked about that becoming a a community center, and it seemed perfect for a preschool. And so Pastor Glenn and your church jumped on board and started pursuing purchasing that building. Well, the building... Purchasing it didn't work out, but the vision of the preschool yeah. continued to get launched. God just continued to open doors for us. So this team will be forever grateful to you and this church for jumping on board and allowing um, that vision to happen. So over this past year, we've been in the process of getting things in place, and I could stand up here all morning and tell you about mind-blowing supernatural things that God orchestrated in order for us to get the preschool open. I promise Pastor Glenn, I will not do that. That's right. I will not stand up here all morning. But we will be out in the lobby afterwards if you want to talk to us, get more information. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to partner with you in any way through your prayers, scholarships, um, Fishy crackers, always going to use fishy crackers. So thank you. Thank you for allowing us to Hey, Debbie, a couple things. You uh, mentioned in the first service something about Christian preschools in Lodi, and there are a number of Christian preschools, but so why would Horizon be different or what? what? Yeah, this is really amazing. Um, <clears throat> on the west side of Lodi, there's 11 preschools. Right. And on Including the east right side, there aren't any preschools. And the real interesting thing about a preschool that's different from elementary schools is that the parents form a community because you have to bring your children. So um, through all that, is that what... Yeah, that's what you were saying, that there's 11 Christian preschools in West Lodi and Zero and East Lodi, I think, speaks to the need for this. And as Liz mentioned in the video, it's a wonderfully diverse neighborhood um, right around there. Um, Not only are there the intentional neighbors that, uh, you know, 180 in this church has helped uh, send out through the years, um, but there's a large Pakistani population, large Hispanic population, people that have lived in that neighborhood. So this can be a real unifying thing and a beautiful thing. And so, um, so the way, uh, the reason, one of the reasons they're here, so not only you can know about that, um, but it is a, a pay preschool. So you, you do have to pay to go. Um, we imagine that, that the vast majority of the students are going to be subsidized. And so if you wanted to give a gift today to scholarship, uh, a preschool child, um, they're going to be out in the lobby. I'd encourage you to do that. Um, it can make a huge difference in um, the life of that child, the life of uh, 
that, uh, that family and the life of, of our community uh, to see uh, these kids raised up to follow after the Lord. And so um, I'm going to just offer a word of prayer. And would you join me? It's my privilege to kind of lead the prayer. But would you join me as we pray for this team um, this morning? And God, I thank you so much for the vision of Horizon Preschool. And I thank you so much for the willingness to step out in faith, Lord, and to, to persevere and to see this vision. And now, Lord, we stand with them and we just ask that you would do powerful things. Father, my heart just gets overwhelmed to think of all of these little kids, Lord, that are going to, to come and to hear your message and to hear it in a place of life and love and stability. Um, Father, just even as we were thinking about this, my heart goes to a prayer for um, so many Muslim kids that live right in that neighborhood. Father, I pray that, that out of this preschool, there would be people that would come to faith, life-giving faith in Jesus Christ, and that would change families and it would change eternity. Lord, we thank you for the amazing opportunity to partner. Father, we know that what a difference getting prepared for even kindergarten um, can make in the future of a, a child. And so we commit this team to you and we pray that you would do great things. Bring all of the right students, all of the right staff and just bless them. Thank you for the way you've, you've brought it this far. And it is our privilege as a church, Lord, to stand with them and support it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, how about a round of applause? Thank you so much. All right. Well, hey, grab your message notes. Uh, grab your Bible. We have got a challenging passage in front of us. Grab your thinking caps. Um, and please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. If you've been around in recent months, you may remember that just three weeks ago, I stood in this very spot and asked you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And then I went on and on about how excited I was that we finally made it to Romans 8 and what a great chapter it is. It's, <coughs> excuse me, one of the best chapters in, in all of the, the New Testament. And I hope that over these last three weeks, you have loved digging into Romans 8. What an awesome chapter. I hope you've been encouraged. I hope you've been built up. I hope you've been challenged because today is a whole new ball game. Because you see, as excited as I was to preach on Romans chapter 8, I had that level of anxiety, if you will, or nervousness to preach on Romans chapter 9. In fact, Romans chapters 9 through 11 have the reputation, at least, of being some of the most difficult, potentially some of the most controversial uh, passages or misunderstood passages in all of the New Testament. And especially Romans 9, which is our responsibility today, Romans 9 has been at the center of debate inside the Christian church, literally back to the days of St. Augustine in the 4th and 5th century, probably even before that. And the tension or the debate has been around this kind of issue that is hard for our minds to understand. This tension between human responsibility and our free will as humans versus God's sovereignty, and especially when you talk about it in terms of, of salvation, God's election. Um, so in other words, we all know that God is sovereign. We know and we believe that God is in control, but, but what is he in control of? Is he in control of all of the details of human history? Especially when it comes to salvation and how a person can know God and be in a relationship with God, which is really what this passage is largely about today. Um, what is God's role in that versus humanity's role? Uh, can, God, can a person only be saved if God specifically chooses them? which is what Romans 9 seems to, to say. And if God specifically chooses someone, 
Does that mean that he intentionally and specifically doesn't choose others? Do we have any sort of responsibility? What's our role as humans in our salvation and our spiritual destiny? So anyways, I was overwhelmed by all of these and other questions that are brought up um, in this chapter. And so I borrowed a book from a friend. This book is called Across the Spectrum, and it does a great job of taking kind of difficult uh, topics within Christianity or in the Bible. And it just kind of presents both sides, tries to give a fair assessment of both sides of the argument. And I was kind of encouraged to to have this until I read the way it introduced this chapter. It's not about the book of Romans, but this is what it said. It said, from Anne's perspective, the weekly Bible study had been going well for several months of its existence. As the group made its way through Paul's letter to the Romans, people seemed to be learning and growing together. The discussion time was always vigorous and challenging. It seemed that each evening ended with general agreement regarding what Paul had been trying to communicate and how his words could be applied practically in daily life. Then came Romans 9. By the end of the evening, Anne wasn't sure what to think. In fact, the only thing that she was sure of was that the group discussion that night had produced more heat than light. Randy had argued strongly that this chapter clearly shows that God is sovereign over all things. More specifically, God has sovereignly chosen only some people, the elect, to receive salvation by grace. Stephen, on the other hand, strongly disagreed. He quoted 1 Timothy 2.4, which states that God desires all people to be saved and felt caught in between because she believed both in God's sovereignty and his love. She left the evening with far more questions than she arrived with. And so I guess that's kind of my goal for this morning, that you would not leave this morning with more questions that you arrived with. Although I can't promise that that is going to happen as we dig in um, to this chapter. So whenever this topic comes up on the issue of God's sovereignty versus humanity's uh, free will, people will always say, well, Pastor Glenn, which side of the debate are you on? And honestly, I kind of take it as a little bit of a a compliment or a a badge of of honor that people don't necessarily know, because you see, my job is to to, to try to teach the Bible. And so when we, and I believe the the Bible maintains a tension between these two. And so sometimes you come to passages like we are going to do today that really emphasize God's control and God's sovereignty. And when we preach through passages like that, I want to sound like a Calvinist. A Calvinist, you know, emphasizes those parts. But when you come to other things that emphasize more of the human responsibility to choose and how important it is to pray and to go and to share your faith and those kind of things and the part that that plays in a person's faith, I don't want, I want to sound as like a non-Calvinist at that point. And here's the thing, I'm perfectly okay with that because it creates this unresolved tension and, and that's got to be okay. Because I believe while scripture never contradicts itself from beginning to end, scripture doesn't contradict itself. But I do believe that scripture presents several times two sides of the same coin, but just from kind of a different perspective. And and both are equally true. And I think that we see this on on this issue. So for instance, in Romans chapter 9, our passage for today, we read this in verse 15, pretty strong about God's sovereignty. God says this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And so we say, wow, salvation clearly is just decided by God's sovereign choice. 
But then you turn the page to Romans chapter 10, and at least it seems to assign some responsibility to us as people, because you're maybe familiar with this famous verse. Romans 10, 9 says, if, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so at least on face value, it sure sounds like human decision and responsibility, even to believe and to confess and those kind of things, um, and declare, um, it, is a a human responsibility. And so there's tension between those two, and that has to just be okay. So let's go ahead and jump into Romans chapter 9. My goal is to stick close to the text as much as we can. As I've said, there's lots of debate around this issue. So kind of the heading for our message this morning is three undebatable truths from Romans 9. And so I just want to kind of prevent the, present the facts, um, let those speak, and then ask the question, what does that mean for us? So three undebatable truths about Romans 9. Now you should know uh, that it seems like Romans 9 through 11, Romans 9 through 11 forms kind of a section in Paul's letter to the Romans. And in many ways, it feels like it, it doesn't fit. Some have said, well, maybe it doesn't fit with the, the rest of the book. And you can finish chapter 8, which we did last week. And if you just picked it right back up in verse 1 of chapter 12, it's almost seamless. Like it goes from 8 to 12 kind of intentionally. So some people have said, well, maybe Paul or someone else came and added these, you know, these verses in later to to prove a point. I, I even read one commentator who said maybe Paul had written these like for another letter or to another church or something like that. Almost like Paul had this little section on file and he like cut and pasted it into to Romans, which is not the way it, it worked then, and I don't believe that to be true. Um, I think what you'll find, and you'll see this over the next three weeks, Romans 9 through 11 are a little bit different than the rest of the book, but they have great purpose, and in fact, I believe great intentionality, because what Paul is getting at in these three chapters really is about God's relationship with Israel and the Jews. And at the heart of it is that God chose the Jewish people to be his people with intention and with purpose. But now Paul says, not only are all these Gentile people coming to faith in Christ, but many of the Jews who were supposed to be chosen are actually rejecting Christ. And so how does that all fit together? And this is especially important, super important, because we've talked about this several times in our study in Romans, that that the letter was written originally to a church that was made up of two different kinds of people. There were Gentile believers who were new to the faith, and there were Jewish believers who had new faith in Christ. And so for there to be one church that is brought together with people from different cultural backgrounds, different races, different religious backgrounds, and for them to come together and to be one church under Jesus Christ, that was a huge deal and was a huge message to the world around them. Just like it needs to be a huge message in our world today that a church can come together from different backgrounds and places and races and all kinds of things and come together and be unified under Jesus Christ. So it's super significant. And that's kind of the line of thinking that Paul is is getting at. How does all that stuff fit together in this church? And so let's um, dig into that. So what I said, we're going to do three undebatable truths. And the first one is this, that Paul's heart was broken for his people, the Jews, who had rejected and did not know Jesus. So it's kind of unique. You see kind of a a glimpse behind the curtain with Paul, if you will, as you really see Paul's 
just individual heart more than you normally see in these first few verses. So Romans 9, verses 1 through uh, the first part of chapter, or verse 4. Verse 1 says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. So Paul's going on and on to say, hey, you guys, this is my heart. This is just me being real with you guys. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So as I've said, this chapter is is really intensely philosophical and theological. But before Paul jumps into all that stuff, he says this is not just a theoretical issue. This is a very personal issue to Paul about real people. This is not just some hypothetical discussion. This is his family and his friends and his people. And so he says, I'm filled with anguish over this. And and how burdened is he? He says, I could even be cut off from Christ if it meant that these other people would, would come and follow him. And one of the first takeaways, I think, is it should be impossible for any Christian person to read those verses and not ask the personal question, who is my heart burdened for, right? Who, who is my heart breaking for? Is it a family member? Is it a child or a parent or a neighbor or a longtime friend or a classmate, maybe even a spouse? And I got to tell you, as your pastor, it is my heart that every single person at First Baptist Church would have a, a burden, would have that broken heart for the things that break the heart of God and for those people that are, are, are distant from God, like Paul did. I saw, I saw a story um, recently that kind of reminded me of maybe the way we should look at this. It's um, about a wedding party in Australia, and this is the newspaper article from a few years ago, and it goes like this. On November 10th, a wedding party in Glenelg, Australia, was unexpectedly called into action right after the wedding ceremony. While they were posing for pictures on a scenic ledge, a woman, unrelated to the wedding, fell into the water and started drowning. So, dressed in his tuxedo, the best man jumped in and brought the woman back towards the shore. Then the bride, who was a trained nurse, waded into the water in her wedding dress and started administering CPR. By the time the lifeguards arrived, the woman had regained consciousness. Officials said she was very lucky that the bridal party was there and they acted so quickly. And then I love this. After the daring rescue, the drenched but heroic bride and best man happily rejoined the wedding reception and continued with the festivities. And I think that story speaks to a little bit of the way that the church should view things. Because it's really easy sometimes for us to feel like we're a part of this big party and we're all dressed up and we're all ready for the event and we're all enjoying each other and we're worshiping together and we're doing our thing and we're taking our pictures and we miss that there are people falling in and drowning all around us. And so the question is, are we willing to do what's even inconvenient, what's even challenging, what may at times even feel dangerous to us? Because that's what Paul says. Paul says, I have that kind of burden that if I could jump in, even if I'm in the middle of my wedding pictures, I'm going to jump in and save someone because it's that 
big of a deal. And so I said that begs the question, what are the things of God that my heart is breaking for or your heart is breaking for? I've shared this quote many times with you. One of my all-time favorite quotes from Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, who saw orphan children after the war and his heart was so moved. And before he started the organization, he said this, let my heart break for the things that break the heart of God. And so my question to you is who are you burdened for? Who is your heart broken for? What are the things in our community? What are the things in our world that make you want to pound your your hand on the, the desk and say, that's not right. That's not the way that God intended that situation to be. And as God's people, how can I be a part of turning it back to the way that God intended it to be? And so as you look around, even at our city, what is your heart broken for? Is your heart broken for homelessness or gangs or people caught in addictions, or children being trafficked? Is your burden for the lonely and the widowed? Is your burden for low-income kids being left behind in school? Is it for preschool families in East Lodi, right? Is it for Muslim people to hear the gospel? Is it for your heart to, to go out to teenagers who are wrestling to find some identity and find their way? Does your heart go out for, for those people? Does your heart break for foster kids? or single moms, or someone coming straight out of prison trying to get back into society? Is your heartbreak for racial division and hatred or for people who just don't yet know God? Because Paul's model is our model. Lord, give me a burden. Lord, break my heart. I remember when I was a young pastor hearing an older pastor talk about this. I've thought about it dozens and dozens of times. He said this. He says, as I grow older, my prayer is that I would keep a thick skin and a soft heart. Because you know you need a thick skin in this world, right? There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of arrows that come at us. There's a lot of criticism. There's a lot of things that we could get embittered by. There's a lot of things wrong in the world, and we just get kind of angry and grumpy about those things. If we don't keep that thick skin, we can feel like we're a victim. But I want to keep a thick skin so I don't have that kind of burdened or grumpy things, but I'd rather have a a thick skin with a soft heart that says, God, I want to have compassion for the things that you are compassionate about. And so that's kind of what Paul says. And that's the first kind of undebatable truth. That's how he kind of starts the whole thing off. Paul's heart was broken for real people that had rejected or did not know yet Jesus. Well, from there, he kind of turns the corner to uh, talk specifically about Israel's relationship with, with God. And so the second undebatable truth is that God, throughout history, has chosen Israel to be his people. God, from the beginning, from the time of Abraham, chose Israel to be God's people, even though there were many that were rejecting him. And so he starts by talking, just kind of recounting real quick, the history of God's blessing the Jewish people. So we're in verse four now, where Paul says this. He says, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. So the first people adopted as sons and daughters were the Jewish people, the people of Israel. And theirs was the divine glory. The covenants that God made, those were originally made with the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. The receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever to be praised. And, and, you know, so from, from, from... 
time after time, from the beginning of time, or at least through uh, the time of Abraham, through the sending of his son, the Messiah, God says that he was choosing and working through the Jewish people. This is so important for us to remember for a number of different things. One is we approach the Old Testament, but also as we even think about Jesus, we need to remember that Jesus was a a Jewish man. He's not like the picture that a lot of us were, were raised with, kind of that blonde hair, blue-eyed Swedish guy who, like from a 70 discos band. No, Jesus was a Middle Eastern man from a working class environment, right? And so that is his, his heritage. And, and that relationship that was set up from Abraham all the way through Christ, uh, that was one that he would bless their descendants. So here's the covenants and here's the patriarchs and here's the law and here's the temple, all of these things to be a blessing to them. But you need to know that from the very beginning, and it's still true today, that when God blesses, they were blessed so that they could not keep it to themselves, but, but so that they could be a blessing to others and that they could be a blessing to the world. And actually, the greatest blessing that the Jewish people have ever given to the nations is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, right? And that's what Paul says. I mean, God was working through this nation so that even people like us, 2,000 years later, could know him on the other side of the world. And so he says, that's the history. God blessed the the people. The second thing he says is that there's a history of God choosing the the Jewish people. And so you could go on and on about this. Paul gives three kind of quick examples. Let's just walk through them real quickly. The first one is that he points out that God chose Isaac over his half-brother Ishmael. God chose Isaac by his choice over Ishmael. And remember God uh, tells Abraham, who's Abraham's uh, an old man, and his wife, Sarah, says, you don't have any kids yet, but through your family, I'm going to make this great nation. And uh, Abraham and Sarah say, that's great, but then nothing happens for a long time, and so they start to lose a little bit of faith. And Abraham has a child with Sarah's servant, and they name that child Ishmael. And um, then eventually, they, Abraham and Sarah continue or have faith in, in, in God, and they, God gives them the child Isaac. And so we see that though normally it comes through the firstborn, which would have been Ishmael, the, the, cho- the choosing actually comes through, through Isaac. So God's doing something different and very surprising there. But what you would see, and most scholars would tell you, is one of the differences is that Isaac really is the child of, of faith. Ishmael was more born out of fear and, and even doubt, but Isaac's born of faith because God's proving this point that God chooses, God's the one who chooses, but he chooses based on his grace. It's not just about a certain race or a certain type of people. Even though it was from Abraham's line, we're told throughout scripture that real children of Abraham, it's not just that they're Jewish by race, but that they're people of faith. And Jesus has that conversation very clearly with the Jews in his day. He says, I could raise up children of Abraham from these stones if I needed to. But man, I'm looking for people of faith. And even Paul confirms this. We're up to verse uh, six now. Verse six. It says, Is it not as though God's word had failed? For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. 
All right? So there we go. So the first thing we see is that God chooses Isaac instead of Ishmael. Next example he gives is Isaac has two sons. Uh, They're actually twins, Jacob and Esau. And Esau's uh, uh, the one that you would expect to be chosen. And yet God chooses Jacob instead of Esau because God is proving that his choice is by his providence, not by their performance. Now, here's where it gets really sticky, and I'll just confess, I struggle with this, because we see that that God chose Jacob and Esau, not because they're from different parents, they were actually from the exact same parents, and even before the twins were born, God chooses Jacob and says, this is the one that I'm going to choose. Now, we usually want to assign some sort of responsibility. Well, Esau did this, or Jacob did that, and we know that Esau did sell his birthright, which is, you know, kind of a dumb thing to do. But if you look at the story, it's not like Jacob is some angel. It's not, you know, Jacob's faithful performance and God says, oh, such a righteous person. In fact, if anything, I heard someone say that the surprise in this is not that that God would reject Esau, but the surprise is that God would choose a scoundrel like Jacob. And the point that God is making is, it's my providence. It's something that you can't even see not just the performance. This is hard for us because we, we say that we're people of grace. We know that we don't earn our salvation, but there's something deep inside of us, especially as Westerners, that want to earn it, that want to say, look, well, I know people are you know, chosen by grace, but you know, I got some stuff going for me, right? And that's kind of the way we approach it. And we think, well, we're chosen by grace, but I also kind of deserve it. And this is God saying, no, it's God's choice. It's, it's based on providence, not on performance. Uh, and this is kind of an offensive idea to us because we think things should be fair and things should be chosen and, or things should be you know, earned and proven. But I love what Karl Barth said, an old theologian. He said, the more a man finds these texts to be harsh, that it's God's choice, the more he is wedded to his own righteousness. And so when we get this idea that it's not my righteousness, then I can say, God, thank you that you would choose. So that's the second example. He chooses Isaac instead of Ishmael. He chooses Jacob instead of Esau. The third example he gives from history is that God uses Pharaoh's hard heart for his glory. So if you know the story, Pharaoh was, of course, the Pharaoh over Egypt when Moses and the people were there. And there's the 10 plagues because Pharaoh's got this hard heart. He won't let the people go. And so there's these 10 plagues that come before God miraculously and to his glory lets the people escape through the the Red Sea and are delivered. And we read this kind of weird and honestly kind of hard phrase that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we think, well, God doesn't harden hearts. That's not the way it works. But that's what the the scripture says. And that's what Paul is saying here, saying that, that God was working even in a terrible situation because God's glory was the most important thing. Now, I will say that if you read that story in the book of Exodus, there's 10 plagues, and every time Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and I believe it's the first four times you read that, that it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's actually after that pattern's kind of established that God begins to say that then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so there over those verses, 9 through 14, or or 4 through 19, I should say, uh, Paul goes back through thousands of years of Jewish history to make the point that God chose his people. It was not a mistake. It was not an accident. It was a plan. And yet now, even though Jesus, the Messiah, came through the Jewish people, still there were so many that were rejecting him. 
And that raises the question, did God make a mistake? Because if God chose these people and now they're, they're not following him anymore, did God know what he was doing? Did God make a mistake? Did God just change things on us? Is it a whole new deal? Which brings us to the third undebatable truth. And the undebatable truth is not only did God not make a mistake, but Paul just points out, hey, you guys, God is God and we are not. God is God and we are not. Look at verse 20. These are great verses to remember in a lot of different ways. He says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? That should be a good memory verse for all of us. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? And I love this because one of Paul's maiden's applications of, you know, a thousand plus years of history is this whole discussion of God's sovereignty and man's free will should lead us to the place where we say, God, I may not understand it all, but you are God and I am not. You are the potter. I am the clay. And our response should be then to submit to the potter and to worship him. As much as the clay wants to say, God, it should be this way, or God, it should be that way. Ultimately, the job of the clay, who's us, is to remain pliable in the loving and good hands of the potter. And then to remain pliable, and then when he forms that pot, to be the best pot that I could be to the glory of the potter. That's what it's all about, right? Now, I'm telling you, in this day that we live in right now, this is huge. Because we live in kind of a postmodern era of thinking. And the postmodern era of thinking basically goes like this. God, thank you for your input. We'll take it from here, right? We know what's best. And human wisdom and reason and all sorts of things, that's really the ultimate. And and what we feel and what we believe is more important than an, an ancient truth from a God that we cannot see. And so we take truth and now we define it not by what it says or what's passed down from an outside heavenly source, but truth becomes what I want truth to be, right? And so this is huge on all kinds of issues because now we say, well, this is what love really is. And this is what truth really is. And this is what compassion really is. And this is what justice really is. And this passage calls God's people to be something different. It calls God's people to say, you know what? I may not understand all this stuff. God, I may not even agree with it. I would do it differently. If I got to define love, I'd throw it out for, you know. But God, I'm going to choose your way. You're the potter. I'm the clay. My job is to remain pliable. My job is to be the best pot that I could be. Now the thinking goes, well, that that seems really egotistical of God, right? To say that his way is the the right way and our job is to kind of circle around God. That just seems really egotistical. But I heard an example of this and maybe help uh, kind of clarify that. It would be almost like the earth saying to the sun, Son, I'm tired of always revolving around you. That seems really unfair. It seems really narrow-minded that you're the sun and I have to spend my whole existence just revolving around you. What if we changed it up and you revolved around me for a time, right? Well, astronomers and common sense will say, 
that would never work. For one, the sun is 30,000 times bigger than the earth and, and the gravitational pull, would, that wouldn't work, right? If, if we were to start to have the sun rotate around us, it, it just wouldn't work. People would be thrown off. It would be death for, for everybody. And the sun produces its you know, light and, and heat so it can sustain a solar system. So in this example, the most loving thing that the sun can do the best thing that the sun can do for all the planets that rotate around them is say, stay close to me, rotate around me. I got this. This is the way that we were designed. And if God is the ultimate one of joy and the ultimate one of goodness and love, for him to say, trust me and revolve around me, that's not oppressive and mean and intolerant. That is God saying, I love you and I know what's best. I love you and I know what's best. I've got you. And that's what Paul says there. And it's amazing. So there you go. That is a quick run through a challenging chapter, Romans chapter nine, or at least an example, or at least an introduction to it. And so as we wrap up and I kind of just reflect back on God's sovereignty and, and, you know, his right to choose people and what's my role in this, as I've kind of reflected on this personally, how I want to respond to it as, as his disciple and, and how I, I think we as a church would want to respond to these things. It's with the, the, the truth statement that you see on the, the, the screen there. God, I know you are at work. This whole chapter is about God's at work. God's at work. God's at work. So we say, God, we know that you are at work and I want to join in to what you are doing. In other words, God, I understand that you are the one that calls. You're the one that predestines. You're the one that chooses and elects. But I also know that you use a lump of clay like me to be a part of what you're doing. So I may not be able to understand it all. I might not know it all, but I want to do my part. I want to jump in. I love what Pastor J.D. Greer says about this. J.D. Greer says, it's the funniest thing. He says, the more this lump of clay shares Christ with people, the more God tends to elect those people, right? You see God's response, God's uh, sovereignty and human responsibility start to work together. And God's sovereignty and our obedience to believe and obey him are not in conflict with one another. All of this debate, or not all this debate, but often this debate is putting together two things that don't have to be in conflict with one another. They can be actually in harmony. I love what wise old pastor Charles Spurgeon said. People love to quote Spurgeon, and this is a good one. Someone asked him, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and humanity's responsibility? And his answer is so powerful. He says, I don't even try. I never try to reconcile friends. You see, those two things are not enemies, but they are friends and partners that work together, almost like in a beautiful dance where there's two partners dancing together. And in this dance, God's sovereignty is leading and God's sovereignty is paving the way, but he's inviting, come and join in, come be a part of what I'm doing, join this dance and enter in. And when we do that, that is where the magic happens. And so as you leave today, don't leave discouraged by an intellectual problem that is you know, 2,000 years old. I didn't think that we were going to get it figured out in these 30 minutes. Um, but leave encouraged by the mystery and the assurance that God who made all and knows all is at work. But that doesn't mean we take our hands off and say, oh, it's all up to him. It says, God, I want to be a part of what you are doing. And that's Romans chapter nine. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for 
your word. We thank you for the easy and the fun and the encouraging parts. We thank you for the challenging parts, Lord, because they reveal you. They reveal that you are a great and awesome God beyond our human categories, beyond what we can think or imagine. And so, Father, we want to just be people that worship you. We want to do our best to understand you and know you, but we also, Lord, just admit that, that where, what you say we will do and where you say go, we will go. And so, Father, make that our heart. Uh, I thank you for each person here. I pray that you would encourage and that you would bless, Lord, those that are hurting, those that need your love today. Would you just wrap your arms around them? Help us, Lord, to love you and follow you in all things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.